You should see the places they play in the Soviet Union. I'm planning on it. You have to get past me first. I'm planning on that too. Hello, I'm Ben Bailey-Smith. And I'm Sasha Bates. And thank you for joining us on Shrink the Box. This is where we place TV's most talked about characters on the therapist's couch. We psychoanalyse the likes of Fleabag, George from Seinfeld, Shiv from Succession and more. Sasha here is a psychotherapist and I'm an actor and we are your trusty guides to why your most loved characters create so much chaos in their wake. At the beginning we heard a clip from what, Sasha? That was Beth Harmon from The Queen's Gambit, which was the most watched show on Netflix in the USA in 2020. And it won 11 Emmys and two Golden Globes. Oh man, that's a, that's a lot of shiny trinkets. It was off my radar for a long time, probably for the same reason as a lot of other guys where, you know, you've seen the sort of runny, punchy, kicky, uh, <laughs> you know, Breaking Bad stuff. action and all of that. And then you hear there's a show about chess and you're like, nah. And I sat down, got into it, and I was immediately hooked. The design, the production design is 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 phenomenal. I would enjoy watching it even if the story or the characters weren't A-grade fascinating. Fortunately, they are. I think what I'm so intrigued by with Beth is that there's two versions of her, and we see them both. It's almost like an overture in the first few minutes of the first episode. Right, okay, because it's more we're, it's more young Beth we're seeing, right? Which yeah, little... well, actually, even before we get to young Beth, there's the, I think the whole thing opens with her in the bath, and she's hung over, oh, yeah. she's having the guy, yeah. having to, the guy from the hotel is banging on the door, waking her up, and she's clearly been on a bender all night. She's chaotic, she's wet, she's semi-naked, and then very quickly we see the other version of her which is completely together and immaculate not hair out of place and she's controlled and we discover that this chaotic woman is also this incredibly controlled chess um, master so we see those two polarities and it's a bit like with Walter last week where with Walter we saw the sort of very white and black of his character mm. we also see binaries in Beth which I, I love the symbolism of the, the black and white chess pieces of and, and if you haven't watched it for a while I highly recommend you uh, you pull it out but here's a, here's a, here's a quick overview we're in uh, uh, 1950s Kentucky uh, Lexington to be precise and as we were saying we meet the the young Beth Harmon who's eight years old she's she's just lost her mother in a car crash and is taken to this orphanage where she's taught chess by the building's janitor uh, Mr. Shable who's played by Bill Camp and and the orphanage gives out these <laughs> mysterious kind of green capsules which are some form of tranquilizers at the same time as her addiction grows, her skills with the chessboard also grow. She's clearly a prodigy with this stuff. So that's that sort of gives you an idea of where we're at and, and, and a little reminder in case it's been a long time since you've seen it. Uh, I should also say, as we talk more about The Queen's Gambit, there's going to be spoilers. I mean, you're going to get that every week on Shrink the Box. It's kind of the vibe. There's also probably going to be some bad language. You know, chess can be very stressful, can put a lot of pressure on us all, Beth included. So look out for any naughties. Welcome to Shrink the Box. So here we are again, 2pm, Sasha Bates' office. Uh, tell us a bit about today's client. It's Beth Elizabeth Harmon. We pick her up at the age of eight when her mother dies in a car crash and we follow her until her early 20s. And that takes us through her arrival at the orphanage, 
she becomes friends with Jolene, who is an older black girl who kind of shows her the way of the way of the world. And then at 15, she's adopted by Alma and Alston Watley. Alston leaves them very early on. So she and Alma again have to sort of uh, (laughs) negotiate the world together. And she then picks up an alcohol habit as well as the as the drug habit that that is continuing. Let's have a listen to Beth. Let's let's hear her. Here she's she's talking to a Life magazine journalist. Uh, you'll hear a photographer snapping away in the background. Check this out. They're just pieces. And anyway, it was the board I noticed first. The board. Yes. It's an entire world of just sixty-four squares. I feel safe in it. I can control it. I can dominate it. And it's predictable. So if I get hurt, I only have myself to blame. There's definitely something in finding safety in this place that other people may not understand at all. I had this exact experience just last night. I was hosting the British Independent Film Awards. And, you know, there's a lot of glitterati there, you know, there's very famous people. And people kept coming up to me before when I was sort of preparing, going, oh, are you you really nervous? I've just seen so-and-so in the crowd. I've just so-and-so's here. And, like, number one, I don't want to hear it because that is going to make me nervous. But number two, it's like... I don't operate in the same way as you. Like when I'm up on the stage, that's where I feel completely at ease and in a safe place. And it's just like Beth said, it's it's the control thing. When I'm up there, I set the tone, I make the rules. Everybody shuts up and they only talk to me if I ask them to talk to me. In actual life, where I can't control anything to do with other human beings, the impossible shyness kicks in the 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 feeling that i've said something wrong the anxiety rises i don't think there's any coincidence and people wouldn't believe that because they think somebody who makes a living in this way must be equally loquacious equally confident in all walks of life but it just doesn't work that way so i I really hear that And, and um beth of course if um if you if you are unaware, is is played by Anya Taylor Joy, and and that clip was from uh, episode three of the Queen's Gambit, which is called uh, Doubled Pawns, which you can stream now on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's written and directed by Scott Frank, and also written by Alan Scott, and based upon the novel by Walter Tevis. We'll give you the full credits for all of the clips uh, at the end of this podcast, as ever. What's the very first issue we discover with Beth? The effect of trauma and loss, and she really has the most extraordinarily traumatic early life, and how that feeds into her becoming these two versions of herself, the controlled chess genius and the chaotic addict. I mean, you've got loss, which is awful. Then you've got traumatic loss, where the, the loss is completely unexpected, which brings in a whole other layer of terrors. And then you have the effects of how that loss was handled. And even before you get to that, you've got how solid somebody's sense of self is even before they've had the loss or the trauma. So on all four of those measures, Beth is is hit hard. She didn't have a stable sense of self before Mm. her mother's car crash. We know that because through the flashbacks, we can see that her mum had her own mental health issues. They lived in poverty. Her dad had had abandoned her. Her mother gives her, you know, very clear messages of self-reliance. 
Then she had the traumatic loss, which is awful for anybody. But if you have a more solid sense of self, you have a greater chance of being able to, to heal from it. But you then also need somebody to help you heal from it. And she doesn't. She gets put in an orphanage. And Do you think she retains a fear of people abandoning her? Yeah, absolutely. But this will probably be out of awareness. She won't be. She has her brain isn't mature enough to to really understand that. So this will be the the subconscious and the physiological response kicking in to to save her from too much information because that information is, is too terrifying. I think when she went to the orphanage, nobody actually asked her what it was like to lose her mum. Nobody gave her any space for any feelings. And we get the impression that she didn't have any space for any feelings beforehand either. So she has to shut that bit down. She has Mm. to kind of freeze it out. And that's a common trauma response to just disown any of the feelings that you don't know how to manage. And at eight years old, she can't manage them. So she's had to literally exclude them from her awareness. So she has to find another way to feel that she's connecting because people, she can't connect with people because they leave her. Her mum, her dad left her originally. She hasn't really got any warmth or affection within the orphanage. So she has to find her own way of controlling. As orphanages go in the 50s, generally it's it's actually not bad. But she, Beth, doesn't seem to engage with it. Like, yeah. like a sort of weird creepy inverted annie or something she just has <laughs> zero emotion about mm-hmm. why why do you think that is is that another sort of protective it's completely protective yeah and um often the people that look like they are doing the best job are the ones that are most frightened underneath i mean it's not dissimilar to you saying people see me on stage and think i'm doing this Absolutely. completely without any fear but actually there's a lot of fear going on underneath and a lot of people that represent as very calm and collected who have suffered trauma, when you take their cortisol levels, you realise that actually they're really stressed and internally wow. their hormonal levels are revealing what their external appearance can't reveal. There's a psychotherapeutic theory called attachment theory, which I think is really relevant with Beth's case, where if you're securely attached to your caregiver, then you are have a reliable prediction that if you get upset, they will soothe you. If you have a caregiver that is maybe anxious or depressed or just abusive volatile. or neglectful or volatile, you have you can't build up that reliability that if I'm upset, they will soothe me. So you mm. have to turn away from them. And it's called avoidant attachment. So there's different styles of attachment, but Beth seems to be very clearly showing avoidant attachment, which she thinks, if I get upset... Not only will I not be soothed, but I may actually be blamed for that. So I'm just going to become self-sufficient. I'm going to rely on myself because I don't believe that nothing in this world has shown me that adults or another person are going to be the thing that soothes my upset. So she turns to chess. But you you mentioned Jolene, her her friend, the yeah. old black girl. That is not fair. She got here after you. Most of us are lifers. Been here a long time. And don't forget your headband. Nobody's gonna come for us now. We're too old. And don't dawdle. We're too black. Jolene, as well as an orphan, she hasn't been reliably mothered Mm. either. So, yes, they do meet and have some sort of mutual connection. But these are two avoidant people meeting. So it's still not a really adequate substitute for a really warm, caring relationship. And same with Mr. Scheibel in the basement. He also is very avoidant. He gives her nothing in terms of warmth. He gives her chess lessons and he gives her a safe place to go. But it's not in a kind of... 
oh, come here, my poor dear, tell me how you're feeling kind of a way. That avoidant attachment style, which she manifests quite clearly, is actually showing us that underneath she's probably so stressed, so upset, but she's got nowhere to take that. So she's had to freeze it down. She's had to like freeze all those emotions, dissociate them, shut the door on them. These templates that we have, are they fixed or can they be changed with work? Can they be healed, so to speak? They can be, but it takes quite a lot of time and, and a lot of work, you can get what's called earned security, earned attachment. So Beth, early on in her life and through most of her, um, even when she's adopted, she has an adopted mother who actually, interestingly, I think is also quite avoidant. Again, she's not this sort of warm, gushing, empathic, compassionate mum. She's somebody who has her own issues with alcohol, who is quite distant. And they find a way to communicate and find attachment within each other. But it is very slow process, this building of trust. So you see it in they'll occasionally take each other's hands when when one of them's upset. So they can only show it in a very distant way. Mm. But I think people can definitely find secure attachment figures later in life. Often it is a therapist or it might be a teacher or a grandparent. You might find a, a partner who kind of in a way enables you to trust enough that those frozen parts of you that you've had to dissociate, mm. they can start to thaw and then you can start to become attached. And I think that's a really clear path with Beth. For me, I like the symbolism of when she arrives at the orphanage, she is like a pawn that people are going to move around. She doesn't like it. So she thinks I'm going to become royalty. I'm going to be the queen so that I have control over. I can master my own my own life. But then she experiences everyone else in her life as pawns. They're not real people. She doesn't see them as having their own interior world. Mm. Um, So she uses them. But gradually towards the end, she realizes that maybe they're not just there to be used. Maybe Jolene and Mr. Shabel weren't only there as sort of um, stages on her journey. They were actually real people. And she sees at the end that both of them held her in mind. Jolene says, oh, I was watching your progress from afar. She finds the notice board in Mr. Scheibel's basement where he's kept all the clippings of her success. And that's another way you can kind of earn security and earn attachment is by understanding that just People aren't out of sight, out of mind, that they've held her in mind, that they've kept thinking about her, even though she had moved on from them. You are thought about. That's that's a, that's a very sort of warming feeling. Mm. And, and you know, what you often hear from depressives is that, you know, what's the point? Mm. Like, no, no, one, no one cares, you know. It's hard for me to even care about myself, you know. I'm unlovable. It's never always true, you know. Mm. It, it, so much of that can just be a story that you've created in your head. Everything that we do, they're all defences to stop mm-hmm. ourselves having to feel really hard emotions if we don't think there's anyone there to help us navigate those emotions. I was reading about the origins of chess. It was like an ancient Indian political war game, basically. It's a, it's a strategic mm, game of war. Oh. And it developed over time and, and the Europeans sort of added the, the twist of of royalty into it, the, the concept of, of the, the leader being royal the designs changed with that about i don't know 250 years ago but it's been around for a long long time but from the very beginning it was about outwitting your enemy playing the long game to uh, ensure that, that your enemy was defeated not necessarily with sudden violence but with you know smarts cunning and patience fascinating that it's it's chess that she's picked Similarly, like I say with me, it's, it's when when I really, really like worship my privacy and 
constantly worry and panic and, and feel anxious about what I've said or did in front of people in, in, in my private life. Why on earth would I choose a profession that thrusts me and my character into the public uh, sort of domain and, and even beyond that? It seems like you allow a version of yourself that isn't shy and doesn't ha have anxiety mm. and doesn't worry about what people think of you. You allow yourself to have a version of you that is surmounts all of that. And we often do that. We'll find a persona that is very different. There's another psychotherapeutic approach called internal family systems, which says that it kind of sees the different roles we play in terms of being an exile, a manager or a firefighter. So the exile is the bit of us that we really don't like, that we don't want to go near. So mm. for you, that might be the, the shy, insecure, anxious part of you. Or for Beth, it is the bit that's like, oh, my mum isn't there for me. The orphanage people weren't really there for me. Even even Alma isn't there for her. She dies on her in the end. So she's building up this picture of people aren't reliable. So she creates this, in a, what internal family systems theory would say, is she's created a protect herself, a manage herself, who's like, okay, let's button this stuff down. If we work really hard, mm. if we become the best that we can at chess, if we don't let an emotion in, then we can manage the situation. However, what happens is that we can only ever manage a situation up to a point and we see her fall apart. We see things start to happen, like she loses a chess game, Alma dies, uh, she starts to feel less in control, her adopted dad tries to take the house away from her. So all these things are starting to loosen the ability of the manager mm. to, to, to keep on top of it. So then what happens is another protector self, which Internal Family Systems calls the firefighter, comes in to use a different way of protecting her. They say, okay, we're just going to douse the flames. We can feel the emotions coming. We can feel you losing control. So we're going to fling everything at it. And that's when the drugs and the alcohol come in. So it's another right. way of protecting. So I would imagine that the bit of you that gets you up on stage is a way of showing uh, the, the more anxious part that, yeah, no, we can do it. This is the, this bit is also I, in I, there. I literally have that conversation with myself sometimes, yeah. mm -hmm. you know. You know, I feel the nerves kicking in and, and the shakes and stuff. And then I go, no, 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 you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason you've been asked to do this. There's a reason you've been hired. Mm -hmm. And I have to have those conversations with mm -hmm. myself. There's another layer. We also have to acknowledge she's entered this world in the 1950s where she is a woman in 100%. It's a man's world. Mm -hmm. I mean... Even if she was totally together, it would be tough. It would be a, 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 a huge challenge. So she's got that to deal with too. Have you ever played in a tournament before? No. Are you sure you want to do this? I'm sure. We don't have a women's section. I'll put you in beginners. I'm not a beginner. Doesn't matter. If you're an unrated player, you go in beginners with the people under 1600. What's the prize for beginners? 20. And what about the other section? First prize in the open is 100. Is it against any rule for me to be in the open? Not exactly. Put me in the open. There are three guys in there with ratings over 1,800. And Beltic may show up. They will eat you alive. 
we can never divorce any of us from our context. And she is a woman in the 1950s. And that brings a whole range of a range of issues. And so for Beth, the character, it's never foregrounded. It's not the thing that she is fighting to combat. It's not the thing that she worries about. It's not her motivator, which I think if this was something written by a woman, I think possibly that would come into it a lot more. But Beth, the character, as we are presented to her in this show, and I presume in the novel, which I haven't read, it doesn't really figure large. So it's hard to really know what Beth feels about that because that doesn't seem yeah. to be part of the journey. Interesting. It, you, you get the feeling that, even though it's not like it's like some ancient show, of course, but you do get the feeling that if The Queen's Gambit was made now, mm. there'd be a, a female-heavy mm. input in, from, from a writing and directing point of view, and that would be right at the forefront. It's interesting. Now, many people, including the filmmakers themselves, say The Queen's Gambit is not about chess then what is it really about the cost of genius addiction both i'm thinking let's seal our next move in an envelope adjourn and we'll be back after a few relaxing games of speed chess This show is supported by BetterHelp. Uh, now, sometimes you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, but you can't find the right way to open up about it and maybe offload a bit to others. If we keep things bottled up, it can really affect us in a bad way. And therapy is a safe and anonymous place to air whatever's been troubling you. I, I know this personally. It always feels better just to speak your truth. It, it, honestly, you genuinely feel lighter. And the moan can tell you all about feeling light or heavy. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash shrinkthebox. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. And we are back. Sash, the more chess games Beth Harmon wins, the friendlier she becomes with drugs and booze. And, you know, as I said before the break, the filmmakers don't believe the show is about chess uh, and it's more about ad addiction and the battles with addiction. But I thought it was interesting, you know, watching her with uh, her, her new mum, so to speak, Alma, who has limited boundaries, I would say. And almost encourages uh, Beth to, to drink 
alongside her and there, there's just a lot of boozing mm. going on and she takes to it like the proverbial <laughs> fish to water. She does and you know in a way how is she ever going to be different when the only role models she ever has are uh, people who also try and quench their feelings with um, substances. So in the orphanage, it was imposed upon her Mm -hmm. with the tranquilizers because it made life easier for the adults to presumably control a whole range of kids if they they were all a bit out of it. And then Alma, who is another woman in the 50s, of course, trying to to manage herself um, in a man's world. Um, Again, that's not really foregrounded. She doesn't have many options available to her either. So she is squashing her own feelings down with alcohol. And so for her, that's completely normal. So she probably thinks that she's doing a nice thing by offering Beth sips of her martini and yeah. um, and, and sort of teaching her that, yeah, this, this is quite a, a useful way to function in, in the world. Because we can only we can only really teach what we've learned unless we deliberately go out and think actually I want to do it differently which Tony Soprano was a, a, a little a little way um, he he kind of thought I don't want my kids to have the life I had but yeah. but Alma doesn't seem to be able to offer Beth anything other than what she knows so the alcohol addiction kind of joins the, the drugs addiction yeah. and poor old Beth is um, slightly helpless for a long time to, to kick this What are ACEs? ACEs is something that is beginning to be looked at quite a lot in adult presentations. And they, it stands for adverse childhood experiences. Right. So the more ACEs you have, and that can be loss, neglect, abuse, uh, trauma, there's a whole range of things that get categorised as an adverse childhood experience. And so you can now correlate the number of ACEs that a child has had with the number of presentations that they have as an adult. And Beth has had a, a lot of adverse childhood experiences. And what can often happen is that if you have a, a lot of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs early on, many people do what Beth did and they shut them down and they try and get them out of awareness and they're frozen in time. But then later as an adult, something else will happen that will trigger them and then they have a lot of responses like depression, anxiety, addiction that have been kind of kept on ice, literally. And as they start to thaw, all these new new things come come to light. Fascinating to watch in a, in a character, I have to say. Now, we've got a, we've got a huge spoiler alert here. Please do feel free to fast forward a few minutes of this podcast if you if you need to. So go for it right about now. Sounds like Beth and Benny are having a game of speed chess again. Stop it, you two. <laughs> Thank you. So Beth's biological mother, I feel like I'm whispering because it just feels so wrong. She crashes the car with Beth in it. The death was essentially uh, a suicide. Now, if if Beth were in therapy, do you think this is something that she'd reveal to you, Sash, in, in the process? Over the course of the series, we learn that she deliberately crashed the car, which the implication being that not only was she trying to kill herself, but she was also trying to kill Beth. Now, that is a huge revelation. That is a huge thing for somebody to be able to get their head around. Beth, as we've seen, has deliberately frozen out all that knowledge because it's too painful to confront. And in therapy, people often don't know why they're coming. So if she were to come to therapy, she might come and say, well, I have an addiction problem Mm. or I have no close relationship. So that might be her presenting issue. 
So what happens a lot in therapy is that people come in thinking, I'm going to say this thing, and then they can't, they can't, they can't. And then as they're leaving... They're literally halfway out the door. And we call it the doorknob moment because they've got their hand on the doorknob that they'll suddenly fling in. Oh, by the way, my mum deliberately crashed the car. Yeah. She deliberately kills herself. And by implication, she was trying to kill me too. I mean, that is huge. Beth, living with this, subconsciously or consciously, those same tools and avoidant tactics, they help with that as well, right? Just not facing the you know, the most painful truth. Everything she does is defensive to keep her from this knowledge. I mean, again, like Tony Soprano, but in a very different way. Her mum wanted to kill her and wanted to kill herself. So, of course, you're going to build barriers. Of course, you're going to defend mm. yourself. Of course, you're not going to go near those memories unless you, you have to. I suppose there'd be a fear of feeling, like, completely worthless. Yeah. How would someone like Beth, a lifelong addict, how, how would she move forward? The thing that we can see with Beth towards the end of the series is that she is allowing more people in. She has got attachment figures. She allows the friends from the chess world to, to help her. When she's in the final match with the, the Russian in, in Moscow, they ring her up and the whole team of them, all these boys from the chess world that she's slightly discarded and used along the way, they're all there together helping her plot and strategize what she's going to do. So she's developing a support network that isn't reliant on booze or drugs. And that's going to be the thing that helps her through. What can we all take from that? As I'm thinking, just listening to you speak, I'm thinking the importance of connection over isolation from human beings has got to be quite high up there even just in terms of just getting by in life life is is challenging for every single human being sometimes when i when i'm feeling low i i sort of rewind and think well, the last two weeks, I haven't really spoken to anyone. Yeah, I mean, we evolved to need other people. Mm. If you're on the outskirts of, of the tribe, that's where you're going to be picked off by predators. So in evolutionary course, terms, yeah. the, the deeper within the middle of a tribe that you are, the least vulnerable you are. Mm. I mean, we all, you know, we all watch the David Attenborough stuff. We are actually not so different. In <laughs> no. evolutionary terms, our, our nervous systems haven't actually moved on that, that far. So we are going to feel worse the further away from people we are. We, we all need people and uh, relationships basically are what are going to save you. But for some people, relationship can be very, very hard to come by for all the reasons we've been talking about. For Beth, relationship mm. meant loss. It meant vulnerability. So she pushed it away. And that's also the ironic thing is we push away the thing that we most need. We defend against the fear that's going to come with if I engage with people, if I show them my yeah. vulnerabilities. And in doing that, we get even deeper into the, the loneliness that is going to make us feel worse. The thing that's going to save us is the thing we're pushing away. Yeah, that's really, really deep. That was free, guys. That was free. Take that home. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, it can be really hard to accept love. And in a way, that's what I think is interesting about the relationship with Alma. Because there's a point where she calls Alma and she says, oh, I'm hanging out with some friends. And um, Alma says, oh, we use stones. Oh, oh, this is a stoner's house. Yeah. And Alma says, oh, well, just be careful what you smoke, honey. Um, that's right. And yeah. you could look at that as being sort of slightly irresponsible parenting. But for someone like Beth, it's really hard for her to accept love. If she had been adopted by some sort of warm, gushing mum who was trying trying to sort of cuddle her all the time, 
Beth she would might have been not, a runaway or yeah, something. She yeah, she would not have been able to cope. She can only cope with the amount of intrusion that Alma gives her, which is very little. And that's a bit like therapy. You have to match the energy of your clients. You have to match where they are in terms of what they can receive. Why does she tidy up that stoner's house? <laughs> Why does she do that? Beth doesn't like chaos. She needs oh, the world to be. Thing. Yeah, it's like the chessboard, as she says. It's a square bolt. She knows where the edges are. She's got 64 squares to work mm. with. She knows how all the pieces move. And suddenly she's confronted with a house where there's stuff all over the place. Nothing's tidied up. Not hair out of place on Beth either. You know, she's immaculate always. It's all part of the wanting to be in control. Mm. So she would feel very discombobulated by being surrounded by men. But it's also the start of her seeing that maybe there is another way. Maybe she doesn't need to be so tightly buttoned up. I mean, that's the night when she loses her virginity. Yeah, she, good point. She tries on, she finds a T-shirt and jeans in, in, in amongst the mess. So she's tidy and she tries them on. And in a way, it is indicative of her trying on a different way of being. Can yes. I loosen the reins? Can I be a bit less controlled? I think we've mastered the Sicilian defence. I think we've improved our middle game play pretty well against the Russians. Listen, if you'd like us to analyse why your favourite characters made such risky moves, do email us at shrinktheBox at somethingelse.com. That's shrinktheBox at something without the G, else.com. And please do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, you know, wherever you get your podcasts and get the new episodes and share them with your friends. Leave us a little review. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, and if you want to listen to Shrink the Box ad-free, then subscribe to Extra Takes, plus ad-free episodes and access to weekly subscriber-exclusive extra episodes from our good friends over at Kermode and Mayo's Take. Um, so start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts or by visiting extratakes.com. Big thanks to our production team. Production management is Lily Hambly. The assistant producer is Bashak Erton. Uh, social media is Jonathan Imieri. The studio and mix engineer is Gulliver Tickle. The senior producer is Selena Reem. And executive producer is Simon Poole. Sasha, who's going to be hitting the couch next week? Well, next week, we're not only going to shrink the box, but we're going to think outside of it mm. for next week's guest. This person is part of a hugely successful ensemble drama. Okay. And I think he's one of the most interesting in it. Let's take a listen. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Come on, let's go. Y'all need to open this door, man, for a huff and puff. Come on now, about the hands of your chinny chin chin. Omar, you best roll out. We up in here with the Mac tank. Oh, I think not, Terrell. I think not. Y'all might need to think this through and stop wasting my time. Because Omar will come back tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And I will put a bullet in all y'all behind what happened right now. You heard? Oh, shit. <laughs> or should I say, shit. Omar's coming. The much-missed, much-loved Michael Kenneth Williams there as Omar Little from The Wire, of course. What a character. What a choice. I, I love Omar. I mean, we all love Omar. And like Tony Soprano, who's a bit of a sort of a, a, a guilty pleasure, you kind of think, how mm. can I love somebody who's a, a killer? 
But he's also, in my opinion, see, he's not that dissimilar to Beth. He's so cool. He's so calm and collected. What is going on underneath that he's had to be so cool and mm-hmm. calm in the face of almost daily threats of being killed, really, um, with the lifestyle he lives. And also the other thing that I think is interesting is that we can't separate him from the context in which he lives. Yeah. In a way, how else could he be? Barack Obama said that The Wire is his favourite TV show of all time and um, and specifically cited Omar as his favourite character. And apparently Omar was partially based on a, a real person, a, a, a former Baltimore drug dealer stick-up kid named uh, Donnie Andrews, which is mm. pretty crazy. That is interesting. What the creator and writer David Simon said was his main inspiration was that it, it was actually a really old source. He said... In our heads, we were writing a Greek tragedy. But instead of the gods being petulant and jealous Olympians hurling lightning bolts down at our protagonists, it's the postmodern institutions that are the gods. Mm, Ooh, I love that. That's great. Um, so what series are you watching? Because this is obviously is a bit of a departure for us. We, 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 we tend to do series one protagonist. Like I said, it's an ensemble cast. So Omar is one of many protagonists. So we mm. don't get to know that much about him in the same way that that we have so far, right. um, which means that we're going to look at the first two series because Omar's story doesn't really get going properly until series one, episode six. So we'll be looking at the first two series. Right. And uh, no one needs to worry if they can't remember because we'll do lots of recaps. Or you can go to justwatch.com and then you can see where you can stream or buy the episodes. Yeah. Or, or, or like me, dig out your old DVDs. I've, I've, got, I've got them all on DVD somewhere. I have to find them. Um, and while I do that, I might dig out my old pager from the 90s, <laughs> start hanging out with people who make toy furniture and readiness. <laughs> all right, I'll see you next week, Sash. Bye. Now, in case you want to go back and study the game, here's our list of clip credits from The Queen's Gambit, created and written by Scott Frank and Alan Scott. Directed by Scott Frank, based on the novel by Walter Tevis. The opening clip, where Beth Harmon, Anya Taylor-Joy, intends to beat Benny Watts, Thomas Brody's hangster, that's episode five, Fork. When Beth is interviewed by the Life magazine journalist, played by Samantha Sewell, that's episode three, Double Porn. Jolene, played by Moses Boyd, telling Beth how it is in the orphanage, is from episode one, Openings. And finally, Beth turning up to her first real tournament is from episode two, Exchanges. The Queen's Gambit is produced by Flipcraft, Wonderful Films and Netflix. You can find all episodes to stream right there on Netflix. Thank you for listening and see you next week.